And now for part two. So what was the effect of this uh, new vision, this this new revelation, new church policy on Judaism? And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, as I've thought about it, I, I see at least three results, the effect on Judaism. Number one, Jews become angry and they finalize the split and a new era of persecution is inaugurated. Um, chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, talk about uh, the, um, the uh, assassination, the, the killing of uh, James, the brother of John. Yeah, really uh, an execution. Yeah. It's an execution under the direction of, uh, of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa was, again, king. Uh, of the Jews, uh, the the Romans allow Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, to have rule, but it's not for very long. I think he's in office from forty one to forty four A.D., uh, and he's the one I think that uh, sees that the killing of James really pleases the rest of Judaism, and so he's going to go after the head of the Christian movement. He's already taken care of one-third of the first presidency. He locks up Peter. Uh, Peter's in, in prison or in jail. A funny story, I think, is told. And I think uh, Luke, who's telling this story, is kind of having a little fun with this about yeah. how the angel comes and wakes up Peter, and Peter is groggy, and, you know, a, a miraculous things happen so that Peter, you know, finds himself out of the prison gates, and he comes to himself and said, ah, you know, the, the Lord is doing this. He goes to the house of uh, John Mark, whom we will encounter again. And Rhoda comes and says, oh, my gosh, it's Peter. And she runs back and leaves Peter there still knocking on the door. Come on. Yeah. You know, that's yeah, a great in. picture, isn't it? Yeah, it, it <laughs> is. And I honestly think that that Luke is describing it that way so we can enjoy it, you know, have a little yeah. humor as things uh, unfold in our own lives. And then uh, and then, of course, um, uh, we find, we see in this whole story that the Lord is not going to allow his church to be destroyed. And what happens ultimately is that Herod Agrippa is destroyed. This, the, the angel who smites Peter to wake him up in the prison, that same thing happens when the angel smites um, Herod Agrippa the first. It's the same Greek word that's used, but instead of rising from his sleep, Herod Agrippa is, dies as a result. And even Josephus mentions this uh, when he says, this is uh, quoting from Antiquities, uh, on an appointed day or set day was a feast Herod was celebrating in honor of Claudius Caesar, the new Caesar, the royal robe Herod was wearing was described by the historian uh, as silver and dazzling bright. When the people acclaimed him a god, he did not deny it. He was seized with violent pains and was carried out and died five days later. Um, if people want to see in this divine retribution for persecuting the church and trying to you know, take it out from the head down, that's okay with me. Um <laughs> The, it's it's sometimes uh, gratifying to see the bad guys get their just desserts. Uh, and then last the thing that I want to discuss is uh, how this new change actually affected uh, the world 
as the apostles go out and and preach the gospel everywhere as they had been commissioned by the Savior. And, and so we turn our attention to chapters 13 and 14, where we note that uh, Paul's first and second mission uh, unfold as a direct result of the revelation that Peter had. Uh, and uh, again, an important parallel in first part of chapter 13 is we see how missionaries were chosen in the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of former days. Um, and most, I think, will be familiar with this, but I I love um, I love the way that it uh, it dovetails or parallels what happens in our day. Uh, verse one of chapter thirteen. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, such as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, that's kind of an interesting verse. We learned some things there. Uh, maybe um, take a minute and just say, um, Simeon is called Niger. Niger uh, means dark or black. And so maybe um, this powerful disciple uh, was dark complected. Uh, uh, the name Menaean is the anglicized form of the Hebrew name Menachem, which people will recognize uh, but he is um, apparently um, a stepbrother of the very leader, Herod Agrippa I, that's trying to take out uh, Christianity. And that would be important because he would know uh, the moves, the thinking, the ideas of this person that he's grown up with. And that's a, a strategic blessing to the church as it tries to navigate uh, around these persecutions. Uh, verse two, they ministered to the Lord and fasted, uh, and the, the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work uh, that I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, laid their hands on them and sent them away. Perfect parallel to the way that missionaries are sent forth in our day. Uh, the leaders of the church, the minister to the Lord, they fast and they pray and they seek revelation. Uh, those who apply for missionary service presumably have prayed to know the will of the Lord. And then when the, so the, the selections, the choices are made, missionaries today have hands laid on their head and they are sent forth by the power of the priesthood, which I find um, very, very um, what comforting, I guess, is the right word to know that uh, just as missionaries in uh, in the early church were accepted of the Lord and had the Lord's confidence and they put their confidence in the Lord, so too that same pattern uh, occurs in the church today. And we've both had children who have served missions and we've been eyewitnesses to that that very procedure that's described uh, in, I think, uh, maybe uh, truncated form, not in great yeah. detail, but it's the same process yep. that, that we see, uh, is that uh, we, we really do see um, important parallels between the early church, the Church of Jesus Christ of the former-day saints, and the Church of Jesus Christ of latter-day saints, 
the doctrines haven't changed. The Lord's love for all of his children haven't changed. The principles uh, of inclusion haven't changed. As the gospel spreads in our day, literally across the world, we see how the Lord was causing the, the gospel to spread across the world of the apostles in their day. So this is uh, one of the one of the premier passages for me in terms of building a testimony that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a continuation of the Lord's Church that was established in the Meridian Dispensation. Well, Andy, uh, I find uh, everything we've been talking about to be just fascinating, and I, I love it. But there's another thing that I think I'd like to add, if that's okay. Please. Um, I was reading recently, uh, actually, uh, a book that I'd recommend to people. Um, it's by N.T. Wright. It's called uh, Paul, A Biography. <clears throat> and uh, he was talking about how often people struggle a little bit to figure out what is Paul doing as he goes on these missions and why is he going where he's going and that kind of a thing. And and he's asking great questions. And uh, I think many of our uh, other Christian uh, friends they would say, well, of course, he's going to help people come to Jesus and save souls, which is absolutely correct, and that's part of what um, N.T. Wright is arguing. But he goes on to say, but it's more than that. He's he's kingdom building. They feel like the Lord is going to come again and that they they want to build up his kingdom here on earth, as he talked about. And so they're trying to establish communities of Christ all over the the world, but especially in towns where... Um, they're important for travel routes and trade routes. Also, they're important centers for uh, worshiping Caesar and so on. And they're trying to, to build up a kingdom of God in these places rather than a kingdom of the world. And that's something that it takes a little bit of work for some of our uh, wonderful Christian friends to wrap their head around. Um, and they, I think they get it. But it's something that we just assume naturally, I think. Because it is such a strong parallel to the restoration. So I see this where it says um, that, uh, again, in verse uh, Acts chapter 13, um, they, they laid their hands on them, or we saw um, earlier, uh, uh, oh, where is it? Uh, verse 2. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Uh, that feels to me like uh, the church was meeting together and the Lord says, why don't you send Oliver Cowdery on a mission to the Lamanites and, and Parley P. Pratt and others should go with him. And then on their way, they stop in Kirtland and they uh, get a whole bunch of saints in Kirtland and so on and so on. And uh, what they're doing is building the kingdom of God and uh, they're, saints from all over the place, but that's the kingdom of God being built. And uh, and the reason for building the kingdom of God is, in fact, because it's when we have covenant communities together that we can better come to Jesus and better save our souls. But there is this kingdom building aspect that we feel a part of, we recognize in the early restoration, and we feel a part of, that I think we see is happening with uh, Paul and Barnabas in this case, it'll be Paul and Silas in other cases and so on and so on, Paul and Timothy and uh, Philip and whoever else, but uh, Luke, but uh, it's uh, this movement 
to help people come unto Christ and to build the kingdom of God to prepare for Christ to come again. And that is something that has a very, very strong parallel with the restoration. Uh, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I think one of the reasons that uh, Paul is anxious to gather uh, Christians together of all different stripes, uh, whether Jew or Gentile, uh, is as a support system in this rather turbulent era. Yes. We've just uh, read in Acts chapter 12 about uh, efforts on the part of J Jewish leaders to destroy uh, church, the church, to destroy its leaders first, and then to, um, as they say, uh, cut the cut the head off and the body dies. And so there's this, this natural inclination to want to gather together, to share beliefs, to testify of the truths of the gospel, but also to support one another in these really challenging times. And I think that that's another parallel that we see in the early days of the restored gospel in this dispensation, is that the, the, in many cases, this was a support uh, to each other because they were living in turbulent times as well. Yeah. Uh, and and I, uh, as you were talking, uh, it, it struck me that we kind of see the pattern that Paul establishes, Paul and Barnabas, and then you say, as you mentioned, Paul and Silas, is they uh, go to uh, a new town, and it seems like the first thing they do is they scout out a synagogue, mm -hmm. they go to the synagogue, they preach and teach, and if we fast forward, or not fast forward, but if we move ahead to, say, Acts chapter 17, we understand how they teach in the synagogue. Uh, I'm reading now from uh, verses uh, 1, 2, and 3, uh, but it's the same for uh, any of the chapters that record Paul's going to the synagogue to teach the Jewish people first. They're still teaching. They're still seeking out. Uh, the Jewish people, but they've included those righteous Gentiles that observe uh, the strictures and, I guess, the, the commands of the law of Moses. This is what Acts 17 says. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging, or uh, maybe um, a better word might be asserting, uh, setting forth the, the truth rather than alleging. That sounds kind of, uh, well, anyway, uh, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ, is the Messiah. Well, those are the things that missionaries in our day do. The, the, the missionary purpose is stated in the very first page of Preach My Gospel, which is the missionary manual that we use today, says uh, it's your purpose to bring people to Christ and then um, invite them to be baptized and to live all of the commandments. But the very first thing is to allege that Jesus is the Christ. So that's a tremendous uh, parallel. And then once a branch of the church is established, and as you rightly say, branches are being established all over the place, all over the Mediterranean region, uh, we are now, uh, we have moved from 
um, say, uh, Antioch to the interior of Turkey, where we have all these towns, Lystra and Derb and Iconium and and there's two, as though one Antioch wasn't enough. We now have two Antiochs that they're, yeah. they're, they're preaching in. And once they establish the church, then Paul and his companions will leave, but they will send letters back to these established branches. And in some cases, if there are some challenges that need to be addressed, Paul and his companion will go back and visit these established branches. And that's the pattern that we see over and over and over again in the book of Acts. So I'm glad that that you mentioned that parallel because it helps us to see so many other things that are going on as Paul is kingdom building, as you as you rightly say. So uh good good stuff for for helping us appreciate that uh the church of Jesus Christ anciently really is alive and well in this dispensation of the fullness of times. It really is a restoration of ancient things. That's exactly right. And and maybe we could even say, I, I, I like what you're saying, the support group. I think what uh, Paul is trying to do is to build a covenant family. And we'll come back to that when we get to, to chapter 15 and the idea of what yeah. does it mean to be part of the covenant. But uh, he's building a, a covenant family, which it makes sense to the Jews, but that's a, a new concept for the Gentiles. And so that's a new concept for Jews to understand that Gentiles can be part of the covenant family. And, and exactly. so we're going to see that exploration as we go along. But I hope that we will in ourselves find that parallel, that we will think of it the way Paul would have, that uh, as we're building the kingdom, it's because or, or one of the primary ways is that we enter the covenant. We come to Christ through the covenant and we become a covenant family. And this is actually the way that uh, that God has chosen to gather Israel, to gather his family. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the, and really the, the gathering is uh, going on in Paul's day as well as it is in, in our day. It's it's yes. all about the gathering of the covenant people or those who will commit to be the covenant people. Um, I I uh, am interested in in the verses that follow uh, verse five of chapter thirteen, where we're told that Paul we're, we're shown the pattern where he goes to the synagogue, preaches and baptizes and establishes these uh, these communities uh, and in verses six through eight um, illuminate for me a principle that I think is um, very much alive and well in our lives in modern times and really has been since the the time of, of Father Adam and Mother Eve uh, when the verse six tells us when they had gone through uh, the Isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, or Bar-Yeshua, one assumes, mm -hmm. son of, of Jesus. And he's with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus. And notice that the name Paulus there, because that is a prominent Roman name. And we'll mention that in, in verse 9 here in a minute. Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But uh, Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is by interpretation, withstood them seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Here's the principle I think that we see 
uh, and and it's articulated in many different places. But whenever uh, God manifests Himself in the lives of people to help them know and understand the truth, you can bank on the adversary showing up to try to wreak havoc mm. and to persuade people to not believe the truth and, and in fact, to try to turn people away from the truth. And we think back, maybe the most prominent example that our listeners would immediately think of is that uh, is that of Moses in Moses chapter 1 where Moses has this great vision of God, and uh, he's uh, left without strength, and then who immediately shows up thereafter? It's the adversary to try to turn Moses away from the true and living God, to try to create confusion. And that's what's going on here in the uh, first century church of Jesus Christ. Is And the principle holds true in our lives. Uh, that whenever God is manifest in our lives, the adversary will manifest himself alongside of these uh, of these glorious manifestations of the truth in order to stop or halt the work. So I'm I'm a, a fan of looking for patterns in the early church that really speak to us in our day. And I think that this this principle is one of those. Um, I, I, I'm, I hope I'm right. At least it seems to me that, that that's correct. I'd be interested in, in your take on it. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, and you're right. We, I mean, we see it in the restoration as well. It's, this is just, uh, if God moves forward, Satan moves against it. That's it, how it always is. You, you can bank on it. And mm -hmm. I think the prophet Joseph Smith said that very same thing. Uh, and, and then verse 9, uh, we get uh, in the first mention of Saul's uh, name by which he will be known uh, from this point on, uh, Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost. And it's interesting to look at names in the uh, Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, having three names was a mark of Roman citizenship. And Paul is a Roman citizen. I think that's one of the reasons why he is so useful to the Lord is because he has Roman citizenship and that gets him in a lot of doors. And it prevents uh, a lot of very negative things happening because you don't mess with a Roman citizen uh, in, in this uh, period of history. And the three names, uh, which is the mark of Roman citizenship is the personal name a clan name or family name, or excuse me, clan name, and then the family name. And it seems like the term Paul or Paulus is a family name. And so while his uh, Jewish name, Saul, uh, is prominent when he is involved in activities with the Jewish people, then Luke, the writer, uses his, um, his family name in those circumstances where he is mostly involved with the Gentile members of the church. And I think that perspective may be a little bit helpful to people who don't understand why we've got so many names flying around here. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a function of, of who he is as a, as a Roman, as a Roman citizen, as a Jew, and as a member of the church of Jesus Christ. So Saul is first called Paul in, in verse nine. Um, 
I also think that uh, that this section, uh, verses 9 through, say, uh, 12 in chapter 13, articulates another doctrine that we see uh, prominently discussed in Restoration Scripture, and that's the idea or the relationship between signs and faith. And... Um, and I think section 63 of the Doctrine and Covenants is a great cross-reference to these verses in Acts chapter 13, where we learn that uh, signs follow faith, but they don't create faith. And so in order for um, signs to, to increase faith or, or strengthen faith, there has to be at least a kernel of belief or even a desire to believe yeah as uh, as alma talks about and so uh, i'm um i'm impressed with uh with this same principle uh, in uh, the church of jesus christ in ancient times verse and I, and maybe i'll just add please, to that yes. that uh, what i think we see both in uh, acts and in the gospels is that frequently for those who have maybe that desire uh, that that uh, they're not cynical and they're not just already convinced that they should turn away. And, and so they're just going to explain everything away. Um, signs often are the thing that catch their attention to get them to investigate, but they will then have to investigate and develop faith yes. and belief. The sign isn't, isn't going to be the faith, but it can, uh, can be enough of a sign to make you say, I need to look into this. And I, and I think we see that frequently. And it's interesting to verse 12, the way it describes uh, the, the faith journey, the beginning of the faith journey of Sergius Paulus. Uh, it says, when then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine yeah. of the Lord. So it wasn't really, I mean, you're right. You're exactly right. The, 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 uh, the, the Book of Mormon type of cursing <laughs> that we see in, in uh, verse 11 uh, thou shalt be blind, you know, the, uh, yeah. the, the sorcerer is it, that it catches his attention, but it's the doctrine yes. that really, um, um, signals his, his conversion. And, uh, unfortunately we see in, in uh, verse 13, that sometimes missionaries leave the mission field. Uh, but, but we don't know why. And yeah. uh, and John Mark, uh, who we have actually seen earlier uh, in chapter 12, when Peter is freed from prison, it was his house, that uh, the house of John Mark, that Peter went to. And, uh, and so we kind of wonder, well, why, you know, why did he leave? We don't know. But what we do know, or at least what we suppose we know is that John Mark is a good guy. Yeah. It's not that he, he, you know, chucks the faith and decides to, to go off on his own, but rather we see him come back to the mission field. And this precipitates an argument. Uh, I, I don't know any other way to describe it. Uh, it's described as a pretty, pretty uh, intense, uh, intense argument. Yeah. Between Paul and Barnabas, when they decide to go back out into the mission field, and Paul doesn't want to have anything more to do with John Mark, and Barnabas says, no, I, I will take him with me, and 
I think this John Mark is the individual that turned becomes the secretary to the chief apostle Peter, yeah. uh, from which we get the gospel of Mark. And so we, I think the lesson for me is we need to be very careful about making judgments regarding things that we really don't know about. And, yeah. and John Mark is, is one of those. I agree. And I think that, that John Mark is Barnabas's nephew, if I yeah. understand things yeah. correctly. Uh, and so right. uh, yeah. it, it's also uh, nice that Barnabas is willing to keep working with his nephew and, and Paul and, and Mark uh, eventually become rec reconciled, but there's a little while where Paul's not going to trust him no matter what. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, good. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm glad that we uh, see things the same way. I always feel better when I can uh, <laughs> measure my belief against what you, you believe. Um, uh, verses uh, 14 and 15 uh, are interesting because they help us to understand the way synagogue service services worked in ancient times, and frankly, the way they work uh, in modern times, there uh, is um, there are th three aspects of the synagogue service in Paul's day that we do see uh, in modern times. One is uh, you first of all you need a minion or you need a quorum of ten uh, males um, over the age of thirteen uh, to uh, hold a synagogue service. Uh, which is interesting uh, in light of what Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there will my spirit be also. But uh, in for synagogue service, you need a minion uh, of 10 men. And then there is the reading of the Torah, one, a, a passage from the five books of Moses. And then there's the reading of a prophetic section that goes along with the reading of the Torah. And that's uh, a, a rather confusing Hebrew word. It's haftara. It doesn't have anything to do with the word Torah. It's a different word, but it's the complementary reading. And we see that here in verse 15, after the reading of the law or the Torah portion and the prophets, and that's the haftara portion, then the rulers of the synagogue uh, send to um, send messengers. So th this, this section is really packed with information about the way that Judaism functioned in ancient and in, in modern times. That may not be of interest to, to some of our listeners, but it, it helps us to appreciate the setting in which Paul finds himself every time he goes to um, a new synagogue and a new, in a new town. Uh I'm going to skip uh, for the sake of of time. I think I'm I'm going to skip to kind of a doctrinal point that I'm fond of pointing out in verse 39. Um, well, starting with verse 38, which is a, a natural division in the actual Greek text. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. We're, we're always focusing on Jesus Christ. And we're all, as President Nelson said most recently, Jesus Christ is always the answer. And Paul does this in a magnificent way, but he's always focused on Jesus Christ, helping people to see the important connections with, with the Messiah. 
verse 39, and by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. And this strikes at the heart of classical Christian doctrines of justification and sanctification. And this is where we begin to pick up the, this theme, and we see it in Paul's letters over and over again, and we actually see it in the Book of Mormon, although sometimes the exact language isn't used, that there is, there is a, the doctrine of justification by which a person is declared not guilty, declared mm -hmm. innocent, even though they they their their inside person has not been changed. But it's the atonement of Jesus Christ that declares them to be innocent, to be um, yeah. free of guilt and free of blame. They're put on the path, the covenant path, and then when they receive the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost works with them, and through a process of time begins to make make us holy from the inside out so these two aspects of the gospel i think are first articulated for us in the book of acts here and it's an important principle that i i mean we'll just see it and we could go on about this for a whole podcast in and of itself so i i won't but just think of all the places that you see this idea so as you said that baptism is the 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 justification the washing away sanctification receiving the holy ghost we have washings and anointings and so on this is something you're going to see all over the place and I, I think it also is where you're going to start to see um this idea that um paul understands um the law of moses at this point differently than he did when he was a, an active pharisee um and differently than many even uh the term Christian isn't being used yet. So those who uh, Jews who are following Jesus, uh, and this is going to be, as you said, something he'll write about uh, in a number of places. And it's kind of the beginning of what will be this problem that we see uh, that, that leads to the great Jerusalem council of, of chapter 15, that uh, Paul is understanding the, uh, the law of Moses a little bit differently than he used to, and uh, understanding uh, Christ's power uh, and what he does that goes beyond that law. Exactly. It, and this is such an important point because it helps us to see that what, what Paul now understands is that the law of Moses can't save you. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, e even if you live as perfect a life as you possibly can or any human being possibly can, and you only commit one sin, which is unlikely, at least mm -hmm. in my case, <laughs> that, that uh, you, you're still deficient. And it's only Jesus Christ that can atone for sins. Uh, I love the image that this conjures in my mind that's recorded in section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the scene is described as Jesus standing before the Father, and he says to his Father in heaven, listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him, before the Father, yes. saying, yeah. Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin. Therefore, Father, spare these, my brethren, that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have eternal life. This is the mediator. This is the great atoner. Uh, no matter how many good works you do, 
you're going to commit sin. I mean, Paul says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you, you cannot escape this monster of sin without the help of Jesus Christ. And this is, I, I agree entirely. Paul sees this now completely differently than he did before. You know, we have a colleague who used to compare this to something that everybody understands, and that's the grade point average in high school. You you make a commitment that, that you're going to get straight A's in high school, and uh, your senior year, you take a course and you get one A minus. And that's an unbelievably impressive record, but you're still deficient. You're still short. No matter what you do, how many three nine nine? Yeah, three point nine nine. You can never get uh, back the four point oh that that you yeah. wanted to. And so uh, it is Jesus. And if if I may, just th- this is a this is a, a a pet, not a peeve necessarily, but I I really kind of amazed at the way that sometimes second uh, Nephi chapter 25 verse 23 is interpreted this is one of the most magnificent passages I think uh, in uh, in all of scripture where uh, we read we labor diligent to the right to persuade our children also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled for God reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. It is the grace of Jesus Christ. It's his enabling power. But that preposition after, I think, gets misinterpreted. Yeah. And it's frankly one of the passages that our evangelical friends use against us to say, uh, you don't you don't believe in the salvation of Christ. You believe in works righteousness. <clears throat> excuse me and so this this is a terribly important preposition and i think it's to be read as a preposition of separation not Mm -hmm. a preposition of continuation it's saying after everything that you do or apart from anything that you do yeah it's it's the atonement of jesus christ my works do not atone for anything it's the atonement of jesus christ that Paul loves and he loves talking about, and it's the atonement of Jesus Christ that that we have to rely on. Apart from anything else that we do, it's still the atonement that saves us. And uh, and I uh, th- that's one of the reasons why I do enjoy studying Paul for, for that doctrinal insight that he provides for us. I don't know if, if you'd have a different thought on that, but no, I I would just emphasize that it is it is not okay. Do everything that you can do, and then finally turn to Christ. That's yeah. not what it's saying. It is uh, you can do everything that you can and you should, but that's not going to be enough. And so you need uh, it's in fact it's not even one percent of enough. And so you need to turn to Christ. So yeah, yeah. thank thank you for that. I I. I really do believe that with with all of my heart, and I think that the scriptures uh, bear that out, and that's certainly what what Paul is trying trying to teach. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, this is an important thing I think to point out uh, in verse thirty nine of chapter thirteen. And we're taking a lot of time in chapter thirteen, but this really is um, Paul's missionary journey where we where we will see 
uh, ideas, doctrines, events uh, repeated in his second yeah. and third missionary journey. And this is verse um, um, 46, uh, quote, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, speaking of the Gentiles, spoken first, or speaking of the, the Jews, Jews. Yeah. first uh, spoken to the Jews, but seeing ye have put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. That and is think, pretty bold. <laughs> yeah, th this is saying, well, for a time, the gospel of Jesus Christ was first offered to the Jews on a priority basis, but because of of uh, events, I think, which indicate uh, Jew Jewish reluctance to accept the need for an outside atoner, uh, namely Jesus Christ as the Messiah, then uh, from this point on, we're taking the gospel message on a priority basis to the Gentiles. And, and this is not in any way to denigrate the Jewish people. It's simply to say, um, we need a little time, a little seasoning here, um, because, you know, events are still pretty raw and pretty sore with the, with some of very fine, uh, Jewish people in, in his day. And Jesus has kind of become a, uh, you know, not a, a, a thing to, to dredge up, um, sad memories. And, and certainly in our day, the history of the treatment of the Jewish people as, as a, as Christ killers, which, which was, uh, first, um, term first coined uh, in the middle ages is absolutely in error. But we do see that, that now we're going to expend our efforts, uh, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And I think that this is the point at which the split between Judaism and Christianity is irreparable. The split, the, the chasm has been widening over the last, you know, several years, over the last several chapters in the scripture. But it's at this point that uh, w w the, the bridge is on, uh, the gap is unbridgeable uh, yeah. at this point. So uh, I think that yeah. that's an important thing. Agreed. Agreed. And I would say, I mean, it's a transition period because Paul is going to continue with this notion of I'll, I'll go to the synagogue and preach to the Jews first and the Gentiles. But it's a it's a pattern that you can predict. There may be some Jews that listen. And I think it's it's also understandable based on what we were just talking about to the Jews, the message that Paul is bringing as you said, that Christ was the Messiah and our Jewish leaders killed him, but uh, also that the law of Moses is not what we have thought it was in terms of salvation. Uh, that's difficult for Jews to hear, and the Gentiles can say hallelujah. Yeah. Uh, great. Uh, we didn't like that law of Moses thing anyway. We always thought you were weird when you were keeping that. Um, and so, uh, well, it continued to go to the Jews first, and there are some places where numbers of Jews believe, um, but the majority of his work is going to be among the Gentiles. Focus and, on the Gentiles. Yeah, and it's with this mission, this first mission of Paul, up until now, all Christians have been either Jews and the vast, vast majority have been Jews or uh, Gentiles who believed in Judaism and were practicing Judaism, basically. Um, yeah. And 
Uh, and we've had thousands and thousands of converts that way. But Paul is going to get thousands and tens of thousands uh, of converts, and they're going to be largely Gentiles. And and so uh, the, not only do you have this uh, gap that you were talking about, but you have uh, an inexorable weight shifting in terms of just uh, numbers. Yeah, demographics change tremendously during this very short period of time. Yeah. And I do believe that uh, Paul still goes to the synagogue because he knows his, at least at this point in history, he knows his best chance to seek conversions are those righteous Gentiles that yeah. have affiliated themselves with the Jews. And you're right. Some of our Jewish brothers and sisters are going to, are going to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but he's uh, for the time being, he's really looking to target these righteous Gentiles because they'll form the nucleus that will spread in all different parts of the country. So I, I agree with that. And of and course, it's mostly the Jews who are going to start persecutions. Per, 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 Paul's persecutions for the first long while are usually started by Jews. Yeah, well, that's the record here that in, starting in chapter 13 and then 14, we you can read ab about the persecutions and that's exactly right. It's it's Jews moved with envy as the scriptural text says that mm -hmm. that try to derail um Paul's missions. Um and uh and we d we do see um uh, um a kind of intensifying persecution of Paul and the Christian movement, which leads to uh, a very unusual practice described in verses 48 to 51. If I can read that, those verses, because it does also speak to your uh, important point. Uh, and when the Gentiles heard this, meaning the gospel as preached by Paul, they were glad and glorified the word of God and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust of their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost." So this this is a practice that uh, I I think I first heard about this when I was a full time missionary, and how it uh, it was uh, occasionally invoked in the early days of this dispensation, and uh, and I think the important thing to point out is that this requires special authorization to perform this ordinance requires special authorization by those who hold the keys this is not something that you do um just just because you know you have the door slammed in your face yeah, yeah you're uh, bugged yeah you're you're bothered and so this passage from elder talmage's book jesus the christ has been helpful to describe this to uh to my students he says Quote, to ceremonially shake the dust from one's feet as a testimony against another was understood by the Jews to symbolize a cessation of fellowship and a renunciation of all responsibility for consequences that might follow. It became an ordinance of accusation and testimony by the Lord's instructions to his apostles, as cited in the text. 
In the current dispensation, the Lord has similarly directed his authorized servants to so testify against those who willfully and maliciously oppose the truth when authoritatively presented. See Doctrine and Covenants 24 and 60 and 75 and 84. The responsibility of testifying before the Lord by this accusing symbol is so great that the means may be employed only under unusual and extreme conditions as the Spirit of the Lord may direct. And so uh, we, we do recognize that this was an ordinance that was invoked in the, in the ancient church, but we also recognize that it is there's an ordinance on the opposite end of the spectrum that also involves the feet. Here we're talking about dusting of the feet, but the ultimate ordinance of acceptation or commendation, not condemnation, but commendation, is the washing of the feet, which is an interesting, um, which is an interesting idea that on, on these two ends of this, both ends of the spectrum, one is the ultimate ordinance of acceptation by the Lord, the washing of the feet, and the other is the ultimate ordinance of condemnation in mortality, the the dusting of the feet. What's a, what's with the feet? Why you know why is the feet uh, involved in these two ordinances? And uh, I really do believe it's because um, the feet symbolically take us where the heart and the mind have proposed to go and so um it it involves symbolically one's actions as well as uh, as one's um heart uh where's where is your heart lay and you're gonna act according to where your heart is your where is your treasure uh and uh, and I, I i mentioned this just because uh i remember in the mission field, this being a big point of discussion uh, on one occasion. And I thought, yeah, I don't really know very much about this. And I certainly didn't know anything about the washing of the feet. But again, we see continuity, right? This may not yeah. be the greatest, um, you know, the most fun thing to point out, but it does, it does help us to see that everything that was part of the ancient church has been restored in these latter days. So from, from that, we move forward to uh, this continuing mission, Iconium. We see this synagogue pattern uh, displayed there in the first couple of verses. Um, I'm interested in chapter 14 because of the actions of Barnabas and Paul uh, as they perform a miracle. And chapter 14, verse 11 says, when the people saw what Paul had done, uh, they began saying that the yeah. gods, lowercase g, the gods have come down among us in the likeness of men. And uh, Barnabas, they call Jupiter, and Paul, they call Mercury. And that may give us a kind of a clue or a hint into not only the personalities, but maybe the physical appearance uh, <laughs> of these two. You know, Barnabas yeah. is tall, broad-shouldered as Jupiter is uh, almost always portrayed mercury the herald of the gods and you know small swift of feet and so on but the like one that. who speaks uh, on their yeah, behalf and so exactly. on exactly so i i i like that 
uh, chapter 14, we, we understand. I, well, I, maybe oh, I'll please. just say, I know there's also um, in this area, there was this uh, legend that at one point uh, uh, Jupiter and Mercury had gone through the area kind of looking for what people were doing and so on. And so uh, they were kind of prone to see uh in, interpret uh that anyway in, in that direction but then i think you're right to, to to see who was assigned which role says something about them so anyway it's it's a fun little thing <laughs> it is a fun little thing um and of course uh paul and barnabas do all that they can to say we're not we're not the greek or roman gods we are men like you but we do have a special calling and that is testify of jesus christ uh, we see the importance of rain in this uh, in this part of the the region, uh, Mediterranean basin, and uh, rain is sent uh, and is believed to be sent by God, and and is predicated upon righteousness or wickedness of the people, and we get a sense of that in this in this chapter, and then finally uh, they Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch where they had uh, first begun. And uh, when they came uh, and gathered the church together and rehearsed all that God had done through them or with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles, um, people's attitudes start to change. But as people's attitudes change, others, others' attitudes do not. And this precipitates uh, a, a bit of a crisis. I don't know if crisis is the right word, but uh, it is certainly um, a, a challenge to the policy of, of uh, inviting Gentiles to join the Christian movement. And, uh, and this results in the Jerusalem Council of the Church, which you have mentioned, uh, mentioned several times. And, yeah, and so, I think Paul sees it as a crisis, whether how much it is or isn't, I don't know, but Paul certainly sees it that way. Yeah, um, and, and and I guess stating uh, maybe the obvious up front for those that have read ahead and have read some of Paul's letters, we know that uh, the, the resolution that's presented at the Jerusalem Council regarding uh, whether Gentiles have to first convert to Judaism does not get completely resolved because yeah. we see it, you know, manifest you know, even in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatian saints in chapter two. So this is the, this is the great Jerusalem council of the church. And it's precipitated by a group of men coming from Judea to Antioch. And they are, typically referred to as the Judaizers, meaning that that uh, the Mosaic law, for them, the Mosaic law is still in full operation in order for Gentiles to become members of the Church of Jesus Christ. They must practice the Mosaic rules of Judaism or the Mosaic rules of Israelite religion. And, uh, and so we get uh, uh, um, testimonies that that are uh, brought to bear, um, do non-Jews have to convert to Judaism first, or at least do they have to obey uh, all of the all of the commandments, both written commandments and oral commandments, which 
Jesus referred to as the oral tradition. Uh, before Which becoming... includes circumcision and all of these other marks of being oh, yeah. of the covenant people, right? Yeah, and and in fact, circumcision I think is sort of the uh, what that's that's the like flashpoint almost the yeah. flashpoint here, yeah. you know. And so, and, and uh, Andy, you you correct me if if you disagree, or at least tell me you disagree or something. Um, my as I piece this together, and I'm not the only one. I can't take credit for this, but um, it seems as you, we piece together what's happening here and what Paul talks about in other letters, like Galatians and so on that probably Peter had come to visit, um, uh, and then you get this group sent that that claimed to be sent from uh, James, the brother of Jesus, who's kind of the head of the Church of Jerusalem as the other, as the apostles are traveling around, and uh, and that they are not happy with the notion that you, you have Gentiles who are joining the covenant, but not acting in in the way that they see as you keep the covenant, which is you keep the Torah, you keep, uh, you know, circumcision, all that kind of a thing. And that, uh, that those who are there seem to respond to that so that you get in, in this letter where Paul says, even Barnabas did right with this little thing. Yeah. Like, I can't believe even, even Barnabas who went and helped me convert all these Gentiles, even he went that way. And, and the kind of the notion is that, uh, you're not really part of the covenant family if you're not becoming Jewish. You have to become yeah. Jewish, which which to some degree, it, it, without the teachings that the law of Moses has passed away, which is very clear in the Book of Mormon and not so clear here in the New Testament. I can understand James and, and those in Jerusalem, their point of view uh, that this is about covenant and this is what covenant keepers do. We've been taught that our entire lives. Um, and I think in Jerusalem, they probably it's probably especially um, poignant because they they see themselves as uh, they're surrounded by people who live this way, and they see the Gentiles out there in the world as the big threat. And so, come and follow Jesus, wonderful, but you're going to do it by being like us, not us yeah. being like you. Um, and uh, so, it comes down to who's really part of the covenant family. Can you be part of the covenant family uh, if you're not going to do it the way we do it? And I think Paul feels a little isolated because it seems like even Barnabas and Peter and, and so on, and he talks about disagreeing with Peter on this issue, they respond to these messengers in a way to say, oh, yeah, yep, okay, we, we're, maybe we're not doing it the right way here. Maybe we need to do it this other way. And that's what uh, kind of gets Paul feeling. And to some degree, Paul probably feels undermined, like, I've been teaching this, and now everyone's saying I'm wrong. So who's going to believe me, and who's going to respect me? So I think that's probably comes to play as well. But I think the big issue for him is uh, we're not going to be able to carry the gospel uh, to everyone the way we need to if it's going to have as part and parcel of it, keeping the whole law of Moses. Yeah, I I, I think that that's right, uh, and I but I also think that uh, there there is no uh purposeful uh, on the part of of say for example Peter and Barnabas there's there's not a purposeful drive to make the the Gentiles uh, do everything that the Jews have been doing uh but it's it's almost as though this has been their lives yeah. for decades and decades and and they can't help uh but you know continue 
in in certain ways and in certain behaviors to look like you know <laughs> the the strictures or the rules of Judaism are the only way to be a follower of Jesus Christ and i mean after all Jesus himself followed these rules, right? Absolutely. He was perfectly. And now we're saying that he was very, a very good Jewish boy. He really he, was. He, we're saying even the, the leader of this movement uh, practiced all of these, uh, these different policies and these different rules. And now we're saying, no, uh, you don't have to. Well, it's, it's going against the very master uh, that we revere as the head of our church. So right. it's a it's a really uh, ticklish situation, and and um, and and Peter is pretty bold. I mean, I I just read uh, the other day. Uh, I was looking for something else, and I read uh, Galatians chapter two, where you know Paul confronts Peter. It's a face to face confrontation. Yeah, and he says, you know, you're going back on on you know everything that we've agreed upon you're going back on the personal revelation that you've had your dissimulation uh and uh, and it's about this issue and it's this issue here and it i know some this is disagreeable to some people but it sounds to me like uh it's it's pretty intense on both sides oh yeah for sure and and uh you know paul paul was courageous uh and he probably was right, but what he did in confronting Peter openly, face to face, wasn't such a great idea. Yeah, fact, I agree. Uh, I think I think uh, 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 other commentators, uh, LDS scholars, have pointed out that uh, there there are right ways and wrong ways to bring about change, and this wasn't the best way to do it. But you have to admire his courage because. Mm -hmm. He knows he he's had personal revelation that knows that this is the way that the Lord wants things now, even though the Lord himself had been. So anyway, and he, he's been uh, the one who's been out in the trenches with the Gentiles. He knows yep. how this will and won't work. And and I think it's maybe worth addressing another issue here then. And that is that sometimes this is the process by which revelation works uh, as the Lord is going to move the the church forward here. Uh, there needs to be something that causes everyone to stop and think and try to figure this out and then eventually unite together and ask the Lord and come uh, and come to learn what the Lord's will is. And and uh, so we can't fault them for not knowing to begin with and for having different opinions. That's how this kind of thing always starts. We have to think it out. We each have our own opinion. We we discuss it. Hopefully, not quite the way Paul did, but we discuss it, and uh, and we go through that process, and then God can speak to us. And so this isn't unusual or something wrong with them, and we shouldn't be shocked by this. This is the the forces that cause them to come to God and learn what he wants them to learn. And not to put too fine a point on it, but uh, this is also the case in the church today without disclosing um, uh, any, um, you know, any um, private matters. I was in a meeting one time when a member of the 12 was talking about uh, how we counsel together and we express our views honestly and then uh, when the decision is made, 
by the presiding authority, then we have an obligation as covenant members to line up uh, with, with the prophets. And he talked about an example in his own life where he first became a member of the Quorum of the Twelve as the junior member sitting there. And there was a particular item that was under discussion. And he said it was an intense discussion. And I mean, you think about it, members of the Twelve in our day didn't, aren't chosen by the Lord because they're wishy-washy or they yeah. you know, ha haven't had some experience in the world. And they... Their experience has shaped their views. And so uh, he said it was re really an intense discussion. And he said it must have, the look on his face uh, must have betrayed his shock because he said uh, one of his seatmates, more senior, because he was the junior member of the, of the quorum, uh, wrote a note and, you know, and wrote his name on it, folded the paper in half and passed it down till it finally got to the junior member of the 12 and he opened it up and, and it says, dear so-and-so, uh, welcome to the quorum of the 12. Here we play hardball. And that's all <laughs> it said. And he, and it helped him to realize that this, that revelation is distributive. That is to say that you, as is, required according to section 43 of the doctrine and covenants you come together to instruct and edify one another instruct you present facts you present information edification is different edification is to build up not not only the church which is the primary focus of of section 43 verses 8 and 9 but also to build up each other and and the the whole point of it is is that these different points of view under uh, the umbrella of revelation then come together and the decision is made. And as we, I think, have all heard, better information leads to better inspiration, yeah. which I'm a firm believer Me in too. that, a, a, so that you may know how to act. And that phrase, uh, uh, knowing how to act, is repeated three times in two verses. So, this is, I think, this is what we see going on in the Jerusalem Council. I agree. In Acts 15. It's a wonderful process we should be happy about rather yeah. than um, say, well, what's going on here with disagreements? So yeah. anyway. So uh, anyway, uh, testimonies are heard. The apostles are present as well as the elders of the church to consider the matter. Yeah, after they've gone back to Jerusalem, right? Uh, after they've gone back to Jerusalem. So that's why it's called the Jerusalem Council. And then you point out that uh, James has a role that we may not fully understand, but he seems to be uh, the one who's chairing the council, or at least uh, in charge. And uh, he then um, presents uh, what he thinks is the best decision. And it, at, it actually involves... Um, uh, or outlines um, practices that are forbidden under what loosely are termed the Noahide laws. And yeah. the Noahide laws include righteous Gentiles. This is back in, in the book of uh, Genesis, um, principles and precepts that uh, primarily prohibit practices that lean more towards paganism 
than 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 they do anything else. And and so right. an agreement is reached, and the decision is then made to send out letters uh, announcing uh, the issue and the decision, and then follow up with uh, sending church leaders after the the letters have have been sent out. And I'm thinking, wow, that sounds a whole lot like the way things operate in modern times. We get letters from the first presidency on different issues. And then, of course, we have follow-up visits by church leaders from church headquarters. So, and uh, maybe as we just, uh, if it's all right, I mean, we're, I know we're, we need to not go on forever, but uh, I just love to point out that in verse seven, you get, it's, it is Peter who will rise up. Yeah. And and say, I think everyone is in the end going to listen to Peter's opinion. And he says, uh, basically, I, I love verse 10. Now, therefore, why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? And he's talking about the law of Moses. Right. Yeah. He's saying, let's let's not do this. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they and and that's wonderful, and that's when you get this um, decision. And then I'll, I'll also just point out for uh, of the things they ask them to do. For, and you you said this, but I'll just give uh, one specific example where they're not supposed to eat uh, of blood or or take of blood. As you said, that was one that was given to Noah. Uh, yeah. That's not that's not part of the law of Moses. This has been around for a very very long time. So anyway, we can keep going. But I just uh, had those just. Two specific examples of what you were talking about. I wanted to highlight. So let's let's keep moving. <clears throat> Thank you. I, if I can just make one comment uh, relative yeah. to to verse ten, the the idea that that this uh, this is not progress. We're retrogressing here if we make the Gentiles go back to all of the rules and regulations of Judaism, not just the written law, but the oral law, which referred to as the oral tradition, reminds me of Jesus's condemnation of uh, Pharisees uh, during the last week of his life. Matthew chapter 23, he says to uh, the multitude and to his disciples about the scribes and the Pharisees who sit in Moses' seat in the synagogue, and he says, uh, what they tell you to do, go ahead and do, but don't do as they do, because they bind heavy burdens on all of us, grievous to be born, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And so I, th I think you're exactly right. This comment in chapter 10 has, has been a, a challenge for uh, certain of the Jewish people for a very long time, and it's even um it involves Jesus's comments all the way back in Matthew 23 don't put these unbearable yokes on people's necks as we have seen done before um i i guess i would uh sort of uh, conclude my comments by pointing out that even though the decision is reached to uh to not go backwards and require the Gentiles to keep all of the Mosaic covenants. The very next chapter talks about Paul uh, circumcising Timothy. Yeah. Which seems a complete, what, reversal of the things that have just happened in the Jerusalem council. 
But I think here we see that Paul knows that Timothy, who is born of a Jewish mother, and that's Jewish law. Anybody who's born of a Jewish mother is considered a Jew mm -hmm. under Jewish law. If he isn't circumcised, it's immediately going to shut off half the audience. They're not yeah. going to pay attention. And so I think we see that that this accommodation is yeah. to further the work of the Lord and not to suggest that everybody has to be circumcised. But because Timothy is, by law, a Jew, it's going to make it much easier for him, uh, for Paul and for Timothy, to present the gospel uh, in, in a much broader audience rather than if he weren't circumcised to immediately limit limit the audience. So I, I do think that that's kind of an interesting uh, yeah. juxtaposition. As it's ironic. Talking. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I yeah. agree. So we we've we then uh, uh, leave off by uh, uh, looking forward to Paul's second missionary journey in chapter sixteen, and uh, some really touching revelatory things that happen uh, reported in chapter sixteen, which, by the way, have modern parallels uh, in in the church today about um, the Lord uh, inspiring His apostles to change their assignments and change their original destinations and go to different areas of the yeah. of the kingdom because they're needed there uh, i want to bear testimony that the church of jesus christ anciently is on the earth today um, i don't know that there's a greater witness to that than simply by reading acts the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and then making a list even of the parallels that we see uh, uh, between ancient the ancient church and the, and the church of the Meridian Dispensation. And I'm grateful for the book of Acts and, and uh, grateful for the opportunity to bear testimony of that, all of which I say in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And thank you. And we hope that this has been helpful uh, for everyone and uh, that uh, if you can think of someone that uh, would be helped by it, you'll share the word with them. So thank you, Andy, and uh, blessings to you and our audience. Thank Have a you. wonderful day. Mm -hmm. You too. Thanks so much.